Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, October 13th, 2021, and happy fossil day to everybody out there. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am a dinosaur of the tech age because I actually remember what Novell Netware and ArcNet are. And uh, I'm here this week to run down some of the exciting news that we've got going on. I'm also joined by two of my friends and my favorite co-hosts. Uh, Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks. Pleasure to be here as always, Tom. All right. And absolutely not related to National Fossil Day in any shape, form, or fashion, I have Stephen Foskett joining me. Stephen, welcome to the show as well. Well, it's good to be here. And on the subject of fossils, I have to give a shout out to our editor, Abzilla. <laughs> All right. Well, we dug up some of the greatest news that we could find this week, and we have it arrayed in a museum-like display for you so that you can check it out. And we're going to start off with, uh, well, with a friend of the show, Intel, um, because they are making a little bit of news. You didn't think that they were going to sleep on the fact that NVIDIA is moving into the chip market, did you? No, of course not, because in a recent interview that uh, Pat Gelsinger gave to CRN, he talked about Intel's designs on moving into the GPU market. Mmm, fighting a war on their front. Um, the newcomer is going to be battling against a very entrenched leader here. And Gelsinger talked about how Intel is going to focus on partnering with the channel instead of directly competing with them. And he thinks that the highlighting the fact that they have their single one API offering to be able to program CPUs, DPUs, GPUs, FPGAs, you name it, they have it. They're going to be able to program it with a single interface. It's a whole lot easier than the proprietary solutions that NVIDIA has been leveraging for a number of years. Now, the thing, though, when you think about it is, is that Intel has a pretty big uphill climb because NVIDIA is quite literally synonymous with the GPU market. And I don't know how Intel is going to fare taking them on on their home turf. Steven, can the promise of being easier to partner with and having easier software solutions be the one thing that finally manages to sway the channel over to the side of Intel? Well, honestly, this is Pat Gelsinger. This is a classic Pat. Um, he's playing to Intel's strengths. Uh, if you're Intel and you don't yet or at all have a competitive uh, product for the NVIDIA GPU space and uh, the uh, AI accelerators and all that stuff that NVIDIA has been pouring so much money into, uh, and so much development effort and uh, getting so many wins with, what do you do? Uh, I suppose you could be an, a fool and go out there and say, you know, our stuff is better, even if it's not. But no, no, no. It's smarter to do to pull an Intel and say, yeah, that's all well and good, but it's proprietary and we're the standard, we're the industry standard. And then, and you can use our stuff everywhere and anywhere and everything works great. Um, classic, classic Intel strategy. And, um, and it makes a lot of sense. Honestly, from a customer perspective, I can see customers looking at this and saying, uh, you know, they're kind of right. Uh, a lot of this stuff is a little proprietary. Uh, as we learned at our special events with Intel with Tech Field Day, um, Intel actually has more people working on software than hardware these days. And uh, frankly, there's a lot of work being done to make their stuff accessible, to uh, make it available to the research community in terms of AI, to make it uh, supported in, in the HPC space, to, to contribute to all sorts of uh, industry efforts. 
and this is again what Intel does best. And so it's nice to see Intel doing what Intel does best. Uh, One API is actually a great, great differentiator for the company. It really is a uh, an open interface that would allow you to use a wide variety of uh, spe specialty hardware. And of course, it's a wonderful uh, way for Intel to make sure that all their stuff is supported as well. Because if they can get people using One API to access NVIDIA GPUs, then later they can add One API support for AVX 512 and you know Intel's next generation you know XE uh, GPU cores and things like that. And suddenly those are all supported too. So it just makes makes perfect perfect sense. And um, yeah, so this is this is Intel being Intel. Uh, this is Intel leaning into its strengths, which is interoperability, widespread availability. You know, great support for the channel, great support from ODMs, and Intel calling attention and not subtly to the fact that their competitors have a bit more of a proprietary streak uh, than than the company itself does. I'd say good move overall. Tom, uh, Forcepoint is looking to bolster their SASE story by announcing the acquisition of BitGlass. The newly acquired company brings a whole host of software to the aid of Forcepoint, including uh, SASE keys like Cloud Access Security Broker, CASB, uh, Security Web Gateway, SWG, and Zero Trust Network Access, ZTNA. BitGlass was one of the last independent SASE companies uh, that had yet to be purchased, and they've been embroiled in some legal issues with a competitor called Netscope. Uh, how does this uh, help both companies, Tom? Well, it's a great move for the folks over at Forcepoint because they have been really hitting the SASE drum hard. I mean, in fact, when you look at it, when the SASE term was invented by Gartner, um, the first one, two of the first companies that embraced it were Forcepoint and BitGlass, because they were talking about how their software allowed you to differentiate SD-WAN from this whole secure idea. And BitGlass very much was a company that was focused on offering the cloud access security broker model software for everyone. And you know, part of the reason why they hadn't been bought yet is because everybody was using them for that service until they could develop their own homegrown offering or if they just didn't want to deal with it. And when you look at the fact that Forcepoint really doesn't sell hardware, they're very much focused on a software sassy edge. They needed to bring all of these resources in-house because if I'm going to buy your solution to offer Secure Web Gateway, CASB, Zero Trust Network Access, but you're partnering with another company to do it, why don't I just go buy it from that other company? And so I feel like that was a, a smart move on the side of Forcepoint. And when you consider that Forcepoint is still a, you know, being sold from out uh, by Raytheon and sold into private equity, they're flush with cash. They really are trying to assemble this, uh, this large offering that will allow them to just you know, get more and more customers. Plus, it gives a little bit of help to the whole spat between Netscope and BitGlass about their their software and how similar it is and all these other things. So, you know, having a little extra VC funding on your side for the the legal team is never a bad idea. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how this goes. And shout out to our friend, Matthew Norwood, um, who's a part of BitGlass, uh, you know, getting a new name badge, buddy, but I think it'll all work out for you. All right, Zach, um, let's talk a little bit about data analytics, specifically Databricks, because last week they announced that they have acquired 8080 Labs. Now, 8080 is known for their Bamboo Lib data science library, which helps with low-code data analytics. 
Um, terms of the deal were not disclosed, but according to an article, it looks like the founders of 8080 Labs are already working uh, for da the Databricks team. Now, Databricks is recently coming off of a Series H funding round that boosted the valuation of the firm to a staggering $38 billion. How is 8080 Labs going to augment what Databricks has already been working on, Zach? That's a great question, Tom. And I'm sure most of you know, uh, Databricks is an analytics platform. And, you know, with many of these analytics platforms, the actual goodness that they contain inside uh, the the information that the data is being uh, used to, to determine, it helps out a lot of people across uh, across the organization. You know, it uh, you know, there could be some very important marketing data or or sales uh, indicators that that can be tracked using a platform like Data Databricks. But at the end of the day, those people that are asking for that information may not be the most technically savvy folks. So uh, in in this uh, you know this marriage right here of of Databricks and 8080, we're gonna see a new low code, no code type of approach where these less technical people can go in and you know they can they can put in a query for a, a specific uh, you know output that they'd like to see and databricks will be able to do the majority of that for them which is great because then you know they don't have to pester the company's data guy to you know make their report for them as he's making reports for hundreds of other people across the organization and uh, you know they can just go into the platform themselves and and use these tools that 8080 is developing to really further their needs. And uh, ultimately, it'll really help Databricks to expand their their potential selling audience to companies that don't have very technical, uh, you know, very data minded folks, and be able to sell to some of those more, you know, the the, the people that want to move fast, but uh, don't really want to break things in the process, say. So uh, th this is a good, a good step forward for Databricks to really kind of democratize the ability to use analytics, in my opinion. Um, you know, we've got some other exciting news, Stephen. Uh, this one coming out of the high-end enterprise storage vendor Hitachi Vantara, who recently updated their VSP 5000 and E-Series storage arrays, as well as their HCP object storage products at a special event this week. The new offerings are in line with what we're seeing across the industry, including cloud and container integration, as well as as-a-service pricing. But what should we make of this announcement? Well, Hitachi Ventara, I think, gets overlooked a lot of the time when you talk about uh, enterprise tech companies. Uh, and it's really too bad because this is a company that has not only a broad uh, storage and hyperconverged infrastructure portfolio, but uh, frankly, some very, very well-respected uh, products. Even back in the day when I was a, a lowly storage admin, uh, Hitachi was one of the companies that was on my list and one of the companies that we would always uh, bring in uh, when looking at high-end storage arrays from companies like HP or EMC. And today, uh, Hitachi Ventara's product line is absolutely competitive with uh, everything that you get from a company like Dell EMC with their, uh, you know, PowerFlex, PowerMax line, um, you know, the high-end HPE stuff, uh, who they partner with, as well as the, um, the, uh, smaller uh, company, uh, Infinidat, which is a purveyor of uh, high-end storage arrays as well in the competitive space. And that's really what this VSP 5000 line is all about. Uh, essentially, it looks to me like they uh, went and uh, tore a page out of Infinidat's playbook and uh, decided to rev VSP in that direction, which is frankly a really good idea because it's a nice, uh, nice system. So essentially, we've got a nice new uh, high-end storage offering here that's uh, competitive in pretty much every way with the, the best the industry has to offer. 
similarly, uh, you know, the HDS uh, or the Hitachi, uh, there I go, sorry, that's old school, uh, old school name. The Vantara uh, E-Series uh, is their, you know, uh, hybrid mid-range line. It looks great. Uh, HCP is uh, probably the most respected and longest running object storage platform out there in the market. Uh, again, this thing has been uh, deployed basically everywhere and they've updated it. But to me, the big, uh, the big aspect here is uh, not so much the revisions to the products, but sort of the revisions to the offering. Because instead of uh, uh, selling things the traditional way, which of course uh, everybody's been doing for a long time, uh, the road ahead here for Hitachi Vantara focuses on as a service, just like what you'd hear with GreenLake and uh, you know, Dell and all these other companies that are offering their products as a service now, uh, so is Hitachi Vantara. So you can get what they call Everflex as a service, which allows you to uh, purchase and deploy all this stuff on a pay-as-you-go basis. Uh, additionally, uh, all these products are integrated with uh, modern cloud platforms like uh, Anthos and uh, support things like Amazon S3 protocol and so on. So essentially what we've got here is a big announcement from a sometimes overlooked competitor in the enterprise tech space showing that they play just like everyone else does. And uh, frankly, that's all good. It's always good to have more products, more competition, more competitive and compelling products in every market space. And it looks like that's exactly what Hitachi Ventara has delivered here. Let's turn the page here, Tom, for a familiar name. Uh, in a new report from Randori, it has been found that people are still running vulnerable software. The 2021 Attack Surface Report listed a number of assets with scores des designed to determine how tempting they were for attackers to exploit. A score of 30 was a high likelihood. The vulnerable version of SolarWinds software has a ranking of 40. Uh, this report details a number of other issues, such as open RDP, uh, older versions of firewall software, and even uh, Microsoft Outlook web access. No word yet from SolarWinds on the report or the percentage of companies that are still affected by this vulnerable software. But Tom, uh, is this news or just ever more fallout from uh, our friends at SolarWinds? So I do have to take a small piece of exception with the way that the headline was written. First of all, one in 15 is about 6.25%. So that doesn't sound very impressive, but boy, we throw around big numbers. Also, when you read the article, um, we could have also had the lead go with a quarter of all companies surveyed exposed RDP to the internet. 40% of the companies that were surveyed are using a firewall that is known to have a ridiculous amount of vulnerabilities with it. Like, like you're picking on SolarWinds, and I get that because they're everybody's favorite punching bag right now. The other thing that you have to understand about why this is news, if I want to use that term, is that their ranking score for their, their um, threat score tops out at 55. So SolarWinds is high. Don't get me wrong. This is a problem, and we know we need to get rid of it, but this is not something where it's like changing this the tire on a car when it goes flat. This is more akin to changing out the carburetor injectors or something like that, where it's invasive, it takes a significant amount of time, and if you have to have that car ready to go to work every day, you can't just rip pieces out of it and hope that everything's going to work out for the best on Sunday afternoon. And that's what makes reports like this so problematic is we know that this is an issue but now that you've put a number to it and you said that you know something like six or seven percent of the people out there are still using it you know what's going to happen 
people are going to go digging for it again because now they know it's still out there. It's not like you had a, a huge vulnerability that was exposed in something like, nah, I don't know, an Apple iPhone. And Apple releases a patch for it. And then a week later, 70% of the people who run Apple iPhones are on the new patch. Well, crap, I better stop trying to exploit that because there isn't going to be anybody left out there running it before you know it. This is, you know, tacit admission that enterprise IT doesn't move very fast. So I feel for the people at SolarWinds because I know that they, they just keep getting black eye after black eye. And it's costing them a lot. And they're working as hard as they can. And I'm I'm not saying that I'm a SolarWinds cheerleader, but I've worked with them quite a bit in the past. And I know that they have the best of intentions. Um, but having articles that come up like this that specifically mention SolarWinds by name, when there are many other dumb things in the report, kind of makes me wonder if this wasn't just, you know, maybe positioned a little bit to kind of keep the heat going on SolarWinds so that we can, I don't know, have this big year later retrospective in December. I don't know. Um, Zach, data protection company Rubrik is putting their money where their mouth is because they are offering a $5 million ransomware warranty for their Enterprise Edition customers. This offering shows that Rubrik is pretty confident in their product. And also, customers have a little extra peace of mind when there's a little bit of money on the line. Now, the caveat, of course, is that they do have to step up uh, to the high-end product offering, and there's a lot of other things that have to go on in the background in order for you to be able to qualify for the protection, um, because let's be fair, Rubrik's not just going to hand out $5 million if you don't know what you're doing. Um, will we see more warranties like this in the future as data protection companies start to move into the ransomware market? And is it an outgrowth of the fact that cybersecurity insurance is becoming harder and harder to find and companies are not willing to underwrite policies just on a dime. Yeah, Tom, I, I think uh, to, to answer both those questions, yes, uh, it is it is probably going to be a trend that we'll start to see this uh, this warranty type approach going into the future. Although I would like to talk on those those caveats you mentioned earlier, because they are very, they're very specific. Uh, like you mentioned, the uh, rubric is requiring that the uh, companies who opt into this warranty program are paying for the absolute premium, uh, you know, product that they can, uh, which makes sense, because obviously Databricks wants you to be using the best of what they've got, and and they are going to put their, you know, their full faith behind that. But like you also mentioned, uh, these companies also have to be working with a an experienced manager from the rubric team to ensure, yes, you aren't just, you know, exposing your RDP ports or, uh, you know, using a, a faulty firewall. Yes, you do have some security best practices and policies in place. Um, and, and I feel like that's a good move on rubric's part, like you said. Uh, there's no point in, in putting a warranty on something that someone is going to uh, just leave over on the side and then have all their, you know, terrible security practices going on on the other side. But from a business perspective, I feel like this this really, you know, it, it shows the industry that Rubrik is not messing around and, and they are going to try to, uh, you know, put the best product out there. But at the end of the day, you know, can a, can a disaster recovery tool really prevent ransomware? You know, I'm, I, uh, there's actually a, a little birdie that told me that a friend of ours here, uh, Mr. Tom Hollingsworth is, uh, you know, just recently worked on a podcast talking about this very topic. So you might want to go and, and check it out to, to kind of hear what they had to say there. But 
Uh, you know, I, from from just a sheer uh, operational standpoint, this uh, this seems like Rubik is really saying, you know what, our stuff's pretty good, and if you use it properly and you work with us to use it properly, then we'll 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 back it with uh, quite a bit of money. So. It'll be interesting to see moving forward if uh, if there are going to be other companies who will follow in this kind of suit and really put their full faith behind uh, their their top tier products and put their faith in their customer base. Uh, time will tell. But you know what else will tell, Stephen? Uh, the uh, the team at Micron have have something to tell as they rolled out an entirely new line of SSDs last week. It is the 7400 series, which is focused on PCIe Gen 4 and includes a range of form factors and offerings, including U3, M2, and E1S. But the biggest buzz is focused on their endurance, which ranges up to three drive rights per day. Steven, Mr. Storage, what's the scoop on these new drives? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's great to see uh, Micron coming out with a, a great range of enterprise drives. Uh, you know, sometimes this stuff maybe gets overlooked, but frankly, all those storage systems out there, all those all-flash storage systems, uh, uh, most of them use off-the-shelf stuff. And uh, frankly, Micron is one of the big suppliers of that stuff. So let's take a quick look at this uh, because, you know, whether you're into, interested in the Micron stuff or not, it really does give you a look at sort of the state of the art of SSDs today. So as you mentioned, um, they, they come in a variety of form factors. There's M.2, which is, of course, the same kind of NVMe drive you'd find in your uh, PC or maybe your Xbox. Uh, and those drives uh, range in capacity as well as, as you said, these two different endurance levels. Uh, let me just take a pause there. The max endurance level here, three drive whites per day, that's actually huge. Uh, that's, a, that's a really big number uh, in this industry. Um, many of you know that flash kind of wears out, and if you can't, uh, you know, have uh, sustain uh, many drive writes per day, it, it can cause a problem, especially in high write activities like uh, chia mining, for example, or farming. Um, but anyway, the, the point is, um, you know, these, these drives now offer a three drive write option, which is really nice. Uh, you'll notice that the three drive write uh, option is a smaller drive. That's because they're reserving less flash for uh, over-provisioning than they do on sort of the, ma uh, the, the max drives, which have more space, but only one drive right per day. Now, uh, on the enterprise side, there's effectively two popular storage form factors that may be less familiar to the average person. Uh, U.3 uh, kind of looks like a drive, like a little hard drive, uh, but these are specialty uh, interfaces for SSDs, and Micron is offering those in both 7 and 15 millimeter heights uh, with a variety of different capacity ranges and so on. Uh, but these are essentially uh, PCIe Gen 4 uh, NVMe drives. And then there's E1S. Now this is uh, what was uh, colloquially called a ruler or uh, EDSFF form factor. In other words, it's sort of the next generation enterprise drive form factor. And these things come in varying thicknesses. And the cool thing there is that basically the thicker the drive, the more cooling you get, which makes of course the drive more reliable. Uh, so they come in 5.9, which is incredibly thin, uh, 15 millimeter or even a 25 millimeter um, sort of super cool version. Uh, I mean that in terms of temperature, not in terms of awesomeness. Uh, but uh, essentially, these drives are what you're going to see in the next generation servers and so on. And with PCIe Gen 4 and NVMe, not to mention, you know, advanced features like uh, TCG Opal 2 and, you know, secure execution environment, things like that. Uh, these drives are going to be used everywhere. 
So that's the, the real bottom line here is that Micron is delivering sort of a next generation SSD that you're going to see all over the place. And uh, finally, one last kicker here is that Micron claims that they've developed the entire drive soup to nuts in-house, which is another uh, differentiating factor in this market because there's been a lot of companies that are basically just using off-the-shelf controllers and, and firmware, and, and they really don't control that, and that can lead to some, some problems. But Microsoft, Micron claims that they own everything here and that they can uh, you know, basically keep these drives uh, performing up to the expectations of enterprise providers. So anyway, it's, a, it's cool tech nerd stuff and uh, cool storage nerd stuff if you're somebody like me who loves this stuff. All right, folks, it's time to take a closer look at a couple of the stories from the last week that have really been hitting the news pretty hard um, with a lot of, you know, breadth, and that usually involves things like conferences. So first up is the fact that we hope that you're ready for what Google says is next for their cloud offerings. And well, that would be because Google Cloud Next kicked off this week with the usual flurry of announcements around the technologies that the search and ad giant focuses on. The key factor, though, is that Google is trying to differentiate themselves from the two bigger players in the cloud market by looking specifically at hybrid offerings for specialized workloads. Uh, Sachin Gupta, who's the GM and VP for uh, Infrastructure as a Service at Google, says that not all customers are ready or able to move these special workloads to the public cloud. And that means someone needs to be offering some kind of way for them to start small, maybe on-prem or at the edge, and then possibly move them into a public cloud offering somewhere along the line. Hmm, I wonder who that could be. Maybe Google? Uh, the secret sauce that makes all of this work, in case you were curious, is Anthos. It is the cloud management solution that is allowing those workloads to be managed completely identically, whether they're on-prem or in the cloud. And that kind of unified management structure, Google hopes will give them a competitive advantage when customers just really don't care where the workload happens to live. Zach, Stephen, is Google going to win business by avoiding the public cloud? Well, let's be clear, that's not what they're saying. <laughs> uh, this is an interesting aspect though that we're seeing with Amazon, uh, with Outposts and, and Google here. Uh, is the idea that that uh, you know maybe the cloud isn't uh, somebody someone else's computer in someone else's data center? Maybe the cloud is someone else's computer in your data center, or even your computer in your data center. And um, essentially, what we're seeing here is Google making a portable version of a Google Cloud that can be deployed on premises and managed using the same Anthos tools that you would use if it was public cloud. Um, this is all part of Google's move toward uh, enterprise, which is frankly a really smart move because so far Amazon and Microsoft have absolutely been eating their lunch in terms of enterprise customers. Uh, you know, it, right now, uh, if you talk about enterprise cloud, uh, for the most part, you're talking about Amazon AWS, uh, or uh, maybe you're talking about Microsoft Azure. Uh, but you're really not talking about Google Cloud or Oracle or any of the other clouds out there. Well, Google uh, basically took uh, this Cloud Next conference as a, uh, a stake in the ground to say, look, no, we're playing in this enterprise market and we're playing for keeps. Uh, Thomas Kurian, the CEO of Google Cloud, who's somebody who is very respected in the industry, uh, gave a really great uh, keynote highlighting not just what Google's doing, but also who's buying. Uh, there are some big, big names up there that are starting to adopt this service. 
Another interesting thing about the offering, though, is that uh, it is being offered with partners with familiar names like Dell and HPE. So these are customer companies that uh, the, the end customers, enterprise customers are very, very familiar with, very comfortable with working with, uh, as I mentioned, you know, even companies like Hitachi and Pure Storage and, you know, NetApp, uh, all these companies are in there uh, trying to contribute to the enterprise readiness of Google Cloud. And a customer can go out there right now and they can buy an off-the-shelf uh, Google Cloud in their own data center from a you know, trusted vendor, like maybe Dell, and uh, roll it out in their own data center, manage it through Anthos. Uh, it's not part of it. It's an extension of Google Cloud. It's your own Google Cloud and in a way that customers like buying it. So for me, that's the real smart move here um, on the part of Google, because they're essentially trying to put a stake in the ground and say, you know, Amazon is Amazon and they're, Amazon's gonna Amazon. They're gonna do the thing, right? Microsoft, well, Microsoft's gonna Microsoft. You know, I mean, Azure's gonna do whatever the heck, heck Azure is. Uh, Google is trying to make this a more uh, acceptable offering in the enterprise data center. And uh, frankly, so far, Looks like they're doing it. Zach? Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with you, Stephen. Uh, if you actually look in the uh, in the article in the show notes, it, it has a link to the uh, Q2 results that, that Google just recently posted. And uh, they've actually bumped their overall uh, public cloud market share up to 10%, which is quite a bit considering uh, the way that it used to you know, pan out earlier, albeit uh, Amazon is still up at the top with AWS at 33% and Microsoft close behind with 20, but it just goes to show that Google is making moves. And, uh, you know, just recently they did announce, uh, some, some tweaks to their cloud storage, uh, platform as well. And, and, and those also did seem to have quite a bent towards the enterprise. So it seems like they're just making moves to really, you know, try and make themselves a little bit more of a bigger fish in a quite big pond. Uh, and, uh, this, this certainly seems like the move forward for them to, to do that as hybrid cloud really becomes such a, uh, a mainstay for many of, of today's organizations. So um, seems like a great move. Uh, I'm excited to see kind of how it'll disrupt the space and, and take on the, the two big dogs that have been sitting on top of the cloud pile for, you know, almost a decade now. So, uh, you know, with that, let's, let's move on to another uh, fun event that just happened recently because uh, welcome to the post-release era, gentlemen. Uh, we just recently saw the coming and going of VMworld 2021, and the virtualization giant announced an entire slate of projects, the term they're using uh, to refer to software releases, which aren't ready to go out the door yet and need more testing. Uh, last year, we saw the announcement of Project Monterey, which was focused on DPUs. Uh, Monterey finally saw a wider release at this year's event, but uh, this year, they also decided to project themselves all over again. We covered uh, Project Capitola in last week's episode. So, uh, gentlemen, why don't we just go down and, and talk through some of the other things that they announced? Uh, let's start with Project Arctic. Yep. So I'll take that one. Uh, essentially, Arctic is uh, VMware's way of trying to bring uh, vSphere as a service uh, out of the proprietary, oh, can I say that? Can I say proprietary cloud lock-in? I guess I can. I just said it. Uh, out of the proprietary lock-in of uh, this cloud or that cloud and into a world where we have just multi-cloud. So think of this as sort of a cloud of clouds uh, for VMware vSphere customers. 
uh, where you could deploy the same stuff in uh, anywhere. And of course, linking that to the story that we just heard about uh, Google and Microsoft and you know uh, Amazon and so on, uh, there are some cloud options out there for customers now. And if they want to deploy uh, VMware vSphere in the cloud, uh, Arctic is promising that they would be able to do that. Wonderful. Uh, what about Project Cascade? Well, uh, Project Cascade is an interesting aspect here too. I'm not sure that I kind of 100% get it, but essentially what they're trying to do is make the Kubernetes model, the model of abstraction for uh, VMware in the cloud. And so you could think of this as sort of taking uh, VMware's embrace of Kubernetes as exemplified by what, what they call Tanzu to the next level and having uh, Kubernetes be everywhere uh, within the system. Uh, there's a, a detailed blog post out there about Project Cascade uh, by uh, Krish Prasad. And um, I, I would definitely take a look at that and see if you can kind of get into what they're doing here. I'm not 100% sure, but of course, a lot of this stuff is sort of a forward looking uh, where VMware is going. So I, I guess maybe it's uh, maybe that's what, what we're looking at here. Absolutely. Hey, Tom, could you tell us a bit about the project Crypto Agility? So this is kind of a novel idea that I thought was really interesting because when you are dealing with the rapidly increasing pace where uh, crypto algorithms and crypto keys are being expired because, well, when you can throw AWS or crypto algorithm, math just works. Uh, you need to be able to rotate those keys quickly, especially if you work in any kind of organization where there's regulations or audits or things like that. And for example, if someone's like, you know, triple DES is no longer secure, you're not using that anywhere, right? And you're like, um, I think so. This allows you to go in and rotate those keys out and rotate those algorithms out so that you're using something more secured. But also it allows you to rotate in certain newer algorithms. So it's a little bit more forward looking. So let's say you wanna do something really crazy like quantum encryption. You wanna do quantum key exchange. You're allowed to do that by saying, well, I'm gonna let these two servers do that or I'm gonna let these two appliances take care of that. But I don't wanna do quantum key exchange all across my entire environment. So this is interesting because it's not something that's coming from the security side of the house. It's actually something that's coming from the management side of the house, which may honestly be what we've kind of needed for a while. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds very fascinating. Uh, let's hear about Project Ensemble. So Project Ensemble is basically the next generation, in my opinion, of vRealize cloud services. So essentially, if you take the app-centric view that vRealize gives you and marry that to this whole concept of multi-cloud and hybrid cloud, uh, that's what Project Ensemble is all about. Um, it'll uh, allow companies to have all of those vRealize cloud services, including you know, troubleshooting and monitoring and capacity analysis and all that kind of stuff uh, with a multi-cloud enabled uh, dashboard and so on. So this is something that's going to be coming out probably fairly soon for VMware Cloud on AWS, and uh, likely we'll see it uh, spread throughout VMware's cloud offerings. Excellent. Now, uh, what's the deal with Project IDEM or IDEM? So IDEM is uh, multi-cloud uh, management automation. Um, so this is all about uh, figuring out how to deploy uh, 
cloud applications at scale in parallel so that you can do things on different clouds at different times. Uh, very flexible. Um, if you're uh, familiar with the whole concept of salt stack, uh, that's sort of what IDEM is all about. And that's sort of the direction that VMware is taking this thing. Uh, we'll see where this goes. Absolutely. Time, time will tell for sure. How about Project Radium? So Project Radium is really interesting. You can think of this as sort of the next generation or the next step beyond BitFusion, which was announced a few years back at a VMworld event that actually Tech Field Day attended and it was announced at Tech Field Day, which is pretty cool. Um, BitFusion was all about uh, making GPU resources available across the network to different hosts that needed them. And uh, Radium basically takes that and goes to the next level with other architectures, other products, other technologies. The idea is that you would be able to have uh, network attached offloads for all sorts of things, including, of course, AI and ML and uh, GPU processing, but maybe other stuff as well. And I could see this plugging in nicely with uh, announcements like NVIDIA with their Project Grace, which is a network-based offload engine. Um, you know, we just uh, talked to a company on the Utilizing AI podcast called Cerebrus. That episode's going to come out next week, and you'll be able to learn about uh, how they're doing uh, network-based offload. Uh, stuff like that, I think, is the direction that Project Radium is heading in. Now, right now, of course, this is more of a concept than anything, but it really is in line with that disaggregated architecture that we're seeing in the industry. Wonderful. Thank you, Stephen. And last but not least, Tom, tell us about Project Santa Cruz, please. So Project Santa Cruz is rather interesting because if you think back to when VMware bought um, VeloCloud, they've been integrating a lot of VeloCloud's SD-WAN offerings into what they're, what they're doing. But it feels weird that VMware is offering hardware because that's not something they've really ever done. Velo still has hardware. And this is an attempt to allow containerized workloads to run at the edge on Velo hardware. Well, it's not Velo hardware anymore. It's VMware SD-WAN hardware. But here's the interesting part for me. This isn't new. In fact, they are playing catch up for companies like Edgeworks or Infiot or any one of a number of startup companies, many of whom were started by former SD-WAN startup company heads that are looking forward into this idea that when you have a box at the edge of your network that does SD-WAN-ish stuff and runs Linux, you can put a container on top of it and you can do other things with it. And we've had a lot of coverage of those companies on gestaltit.com over the last couple of years that you would find interesting. But this is much like Project Tanzu was VMware saying, hey, we can do containers too. Uh, Project Santa Cruz, at least this version of it is, hey, look, we can do containers at the edge too. Um, I'm curious to see kind of how they apply their aspect to things because one of the biggest factors for me is going to be how much integration does it have with Project Tanzu? How much integration does it have with the existing VMware management infrastructure? Because that's VMware's real special part that they can offer that nobody else can. And if that takes off, then yeah, people are going to snap it up left and right. But if not, if you want the best performance and maybe you don't care about the management, maybe what you're going to do is look for a company that's kind of already established in the space, even though they're a startup, they've been fighting these battles for a while. So time will tell if this is something that's actually going to take off. I'd also like to point out that we got some updates on some of the previous projects that we've heard about. So Tom just mentioned Tanzu. Uh, one of the things that we saw at VMworld this year that uh, I was very happy to see is an update on the community edition of Tanzu. So people can uh, now deploy their own Tanzu uh, open source uh, 
from uh, your workstation to a cloud, which is great. Um, and we've seen a lot more integration points with Tanzu. I mean, clearly this is a direction that, that VMware is firmly committed to and has moved beyond project status. Another thing that seems to be moving beyond project status is Project Monterey, which we saw last year uh, with these DPUs and uh, offload engines, uh, SmartNICs, that sort of thing. Um, VMware came back this year uh, with a whole ton of Project Monterey stuff. Uh, they're talking about how customers are starting to deploy this. Uh, we certainly have seen customers buying DPUs from a variety of companies. In fact, too many companies for me to mention right now. And this really is a, a nice move forward. And then finally, I'd like to call out as well that VMware has strongly embraced NVMe over TCP, which is a storage protocol that lets us access uh, resources remotely. This kind of goes hand in hand with what we were talking about with Radium and uh, BitFusion and these other aspects of, of kind of allowing um, different uh, components across a network to integrate into a host and allow the host to access resources remotely, which is really in line with the architectural direction of the industry. So all this being said, essentially we saw VMware announcing a really nice set of projects, of ideas, and kind of laying down the, the, the more solid groundwork and, uh, underneath some of the projects that they announced last year. All right, thank you very much, Stephen. Um, we usually like to talk a little bit about some of the things that we have coming up, but we thought it might be a good idea to give you all a peek at some of the cool things that are going on throughout the next week um, that you might be interested in in taking part in. I'll still jump in because the most important thing going on next week for me is Security Field Day. Uh, it's happening Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, October 20th through the 22nd. We're going to have a bunch of great presenters. Um, you can head over to the website at techfieldday.com to learn about who they are as well as who the delegates that are going to be taking part in that are. Another thing that's happening next week um, on somewhat the same days is NetApp Insight. Uh, the Americas version is October 20th, and then they've got EMEA and APAC on the 21st and the 22nd. And essentially, this is a great chance for you to get up to date on the latest things that are happening with NetApp. Over at Gestalt IT, we also just recently released a very riveting showcase with Intel talking about the capabilities of private networks and how Intel's hardware and software are supporting them. So go on and check those out. They are very interesting. We had an esteemed panel of delegates who... Uh, really, really ask some good questions. So you'll have to go on over and check it out. And finally, on Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific time, uh, we've got a special event from Apple. Now, obviously, this is not an enterprise event, but uh, pundits expect that we're going to see the next generation high-end MacBook Pros there. And uh, there's also rumors of Doctor Who being involved. So I guess we'll figure it out somehow. All right. Well, that will just about wrap it up for this episode of The Rundown. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. You can always find us Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time uh, on our Facebook page. Uh, we also post the videos to gestaltit.com as well as many other places. And uh, if you want to listen to us in podcast form, uh, you can subscribe to the Gestalt IT Rundown in your favorite podcast application of choice. Also, if you subscribe to us through iTunes, leave us a like and a rating because people love to hear about cool new things to check out when they're bored with their regular podcast schedules. 
Um, we are going to be back next week with more great news. Actually, Zach and Steven will be back next week because, as I mentioned, I'll be at Security Field Day, so I can't talk about that. It's super secure. But they'll have every piece of news that you'll want to pay attention to. Um, maybe we'll even have one of those brand new maybe MacBooks to show off if we can get it teleported through here with a TARDIS. Um, but for now, I want to say a special happy birthday to the United States Navy. Congratulations. Way to keep us um, safe at seas. But until next week, uh, for Zach and Steven and myself and for the rest of our great Gestalt IT community, thank you very much for tuning in for the rundown. And we hope that you have a great day and an amazing week ahead.